Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the special episode of We Gotta Talk, coming a day later than normal, but so, so grateful that you're here. As I've been talking about on Instagram all week, we have a a heavier but very necessary topic today or this week that we've been digging into, which is trauma. Um, Our guest today is Dr. Hilary Goldscher. She is a clinical psychologist based in Beverly Hills. Her specialties are trauma, depression, anxiety. She does couples work. And if you follow her on Instagram, you'll also see a ton of great parenting tips, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, So I really, excited to dig into this topic. If you submitted a question, as always, we'll get to those kind of toward the end of the show. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Let's bring on Dr. Hillary right now and welcome her to the show. Dr. Hillary, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So trauma is a complicated topic. I'm certain in your clinical practice, you've dealt with a lot of people who maybe even didn't realize that they had experienced this. So let's lead things off with describing what trauma is and what it's not so that people can understand if you know, it, they need to sort of seek help in this area. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a complex and super important question because trauma is really on a spectrum and we want to honor trauma all the way along that pendulum, right? There's, I think you talked in your stories this week about trauma with a capital T, which is sort of obvious, objective, intense, traumatic trauma where something really traumatic and traumatic has happened, right? And there's small t traumas as well, which um, are more emotional or psychological or mental that can take their toll as well. So creating that kind of landscape, that kind of paradigm before I drill down to define. And trauma is experiencing something that is an affront to your psyche right? Mm -hmm. That is a a violation of safety inside of your body, inside of your soul, inside of your mind. And it takes many forms. It could be sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, psychological abuse, abandonment, misalignment. There are a number of forms that it can occur in, and it can occur when we're young uh, children. It can occur all the way up to um, adulthood, of course. And so it is an affront to the psyche that leaves one feeling unstable, destabilized, disoriented, disenfranchised. It's a wound. It is a core wound. Is it safe to say that nobody makes it through life without experiencing some form of trauma? No question. I'm actually so glad you asked that question and put that paradigm out there. Unfortunately, but authentically, realistically, we all experience some kind of affront to our psyche, whether that occurs in our family of origin, whether that occurs in romantic relationships, in the work environment. We all experience something that feels like a violation of our safety. So when you're working with people who are pretty certain they haven't experienced, and we will get into the the capital T or the big T trauma as we continue to discuss, but let's focus on that small T trauma. Um, give us some concrete examples. You you just mentioned a couple of things, issues in relationships, maybe bullying. Would that be considered something that would be a small trauma that, that can still impact someone later in life? You hear so many adults say that they still feel the impact of the bullying they experienced, say, in middle school or high school. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a part of me that sort of hesitates to even call that a small T trauma or really any trauma a small T trauma. But if we have to put things in a hierarchy for the purposes of dialogue, we all understand that if someone experiences 
chronic sexual and physical and mental abuse or is the victim of a violent crime that that easily is categorized as sort of a, a big T trauma to use the language that we're, we're applying and that these more sort of microaggressions or more contained moments could be categorized under the sort of smaller T trauma. But all of that to say, absolutely, uh, being the victim of bullying in middle school, working with an abusive, unkind, disrespectful boss, being in a relationship where your romantic partner or friend is emotionally abusive. All of those things can be categorized as sort of a small t trauma and linger with us because it changes the way in some cases, if it's not discussed, if it's not treated, if it's not processed and thought about it, potentially changes the way that we think about ourselves, that we see ourselves, that we move through the world, that we move through relationships. And that's one of the key components of trauma is that the experience itself lingers with us and changes the way that we interact with the world and how we feel about ourselves. I want to know this just, and, and again, we'll get into specifics later, but just to feel a sense of optimism. Um, you're talking about bearing some of that and the impact it can have on our relationships or our sense of self. If people do properly deal with their case of trauma, can you finally put that behind you? Do you see clients who are affirmatively beyond the symptoms of their trauma? Yes, yes, yes. And I, I, I want to say that in a, a very clear and deliberate way to provide real hope, not just to put a, a cliche out there to dangle kind of an emotional carrot, but absolutely when the work is done and we don't suppress and we process feelings in a safe environment, there's no doubt that we can move through trauma. I want to add, because I think it's a very realistic picture, that trauma doesn't go away. It doesn't completely disappear. What happens is that we gain mastery over it, agency over it. And so the intensity and duration of how we experience the aftermath of it changes, shortens, improves, and we visit it much less over time. So there's a sense of empowerment that we develop in relationship to the trauma. I wouldn't want to offer that it completely disappears because I think people that have experienced all sorts of trauma would sort of indicate that over time they can be triggered into experiencing a piece of the trauma, a symptom mm -hmm. of the trauma, a feeling related to the trauma many, many years after, even when they felt healed. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that they're um, uh, in, a, in a weakened place or that they're not uh, mostly healed from the trauma. It just means that some triggers um, uh, get into our, our mind and our body and soul, and we have lots of tools to face it. I think that's helpful because by default, most people, even if they tend to be um, very open or sharing of their emotions, I, I would imagine most of us lock most of our trauma away just based on survival, right? So hearing you talk about you know, there are people who successfully get beyond that. It just makes me feel really good because I think that's what we default to as humans. We're just trying to move on to the next day. Like you said, in the example of workplace issues or microaggressions, you're just trying to get your paycheck. You know, you don't want to. So we do tend to bury so much of that. So hearing you say that there really is hope that people can functionally get past those, those yep. symptoms feels really good. Yes, what you're, you're alluding to is that sort of fight or flight primitive edict that we have inside of ourselves, right? I mean, this is biological. Uh, we 
came into the world with that. So when something bad happens, most of us have that pull to either freeze or to, to, to fight, right? But our automatic response is typically not to linger in it, to sit in it, to think about it, to talk about it, to process it. And that's part of what therapy and a therapeutic environment can offer is, is a really safe environment to sort of guide someone to gently, safely sit in what's occurred so we can process it. I often use this um, sort of shorthand um, rhyming notion, which is like suppression can lead to depression, right? <laughs> and But it but it's true. It's, it's one of the uh, primary uh, sort of dynamics that I see with clients who've dealt with trauma is that they've suppressed it, as you alluded to, in order to survive, to move through the day, to, to get through, to carry on. But what really needs to happen is that it has to come up and out in a safe way. Otherwise, it gets stuck in our body and there's sort of like emotional rent to pay. We have symptoms. We have depression. We have anxiety. We pull away in relationships. We start having symptoms of anger. We drink too much. We work too much. There's always emotional rent to pay if we don't process mm -hmm. our Oh, I love that emotional rent to pay. I'm going to remember that. Um, we're hearing so many words like microaggression, trigger um, in, in, the, in common conversation today. And I wonder if you, from a clinical perspective, roll your eyes when you hear that. Is it a sense of feeling like there's an overuse of these words? Or do you feel like it's a step in the right direction that people are beginning to put words to the things that they've been experiencing? Because I think, I know as a, as a consumer of of culture, pop culture these days, sometimes, you know, when you, you hear someone feeling triggered every minute of every day, and it can feel difficult to like get away from an environment where it caters overly to um, avoiding triggers, avoiding every form of potentially irritating behavior. So where do you fall on that? And what do you make of the current conversation that really starts to work in all of these like clinical terms into everyday speak? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think there's some drawbacks, but in general, I sort of love it because having language that's um, in the general public's, uh, in, in the arena of the general public that the sort of common person has access to helps people to identify their feelings and to have language and dialogue to discuss their experiences. And, and sure, like with anything, it can be overused or um, uh, start to feel um, overwhelming or applied um, in arenas where maybe it doesn't fit. But in general, I think it gives folks an opportunity to say out loud to themselves, to their friend, to their partner, to the therapist, this moment hurt me. This moment didn't feel good. This moment felt like an affront. This moment felt like a violation, as opposed to suppressing or not acknowledging, dismissing, minimizing. And as I was talking about before, even in these microaggressions or these mini moments where we have things that don't feel good, when we don't think about them, when we don't talk about them, we often act out as a result. And so I love the idea of it being a more common practice woven into how we move through the world that we think about like how that just felt and what I just experienced and have uh, an easier way to talk about it. I think it's true that we can have those moments where it feels like it's it's overused and and perhaps used as as a way to um, stop conversation or to uh, uh, promote a sort of disconnection or to cause defensiveness in other person. But I, I think that's with with anything. I, I in general like the idea that there's a way to talk about these things. Let's dig deeper into identifying our own triggers. What are some things that people can look for, whether it's a sensation in their body or a feeling they get or some other 
um, you know, flag that they are being triggered, that something is stirring the muck of their trauma. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, a myriad of things that can come up for each individual. And I'll try to cover the general arenas that we typically see starting kind of first at the physical. People often have a physical trigger, a physical response to something that is making them uncomfortable, that feels like a violation, that is triggering um, an, an old uh, pattern that has been toxic or abusive. And we can feel that any number of ways inside of our body, Any anything from you know a, a pit in our stomach to shaky hands to, uh, to a sweaty body to feeling heat in our face, uh, a drop in our stomach, any physical symptom or sensation that feels outside the norm can be a flag to you that, oh, something's happening in my body that maybe my heart or head has not caught up to, right? Sometimes a physical symptom will be accompanied with an uncomfortable set of feelings or triggering or upsetting thoughts, but sometimes it's just in the body. And so staying attuned to our body for those type of signals is such a critical way to stay connected with where we are. And once we note, oh, wow, my hands are feeling shaky. What what just happened? And being able to back into like, mm, I just hung up the phone with my mom. And actually, I felt like she was kind of criticizing my parenting. And wow, that triggered that dynamic in my childhood when I felt criticized all the time. Let me take a moment and, and adopt some self-compassion, decide on what narrative I wanna use in this moment because I'm feeling I'm like I'm in like my younger self mode, right? We can, we can really take those as as identifiers that something is happening and it slow everything way down to help ourselves. I'm like understanding as you talk why what you do fits so seamlessly into the parenting tips, which you so often share as well, because I'm hearing you talk and it's all about identifying emotions, helping to clearly communicate to people around us how we're feeling and why, and then deciding what to do after that, which if you have a child, you know, is like a really difficult but necessary task. I look back on the way kids were raised even you know, two generations past our grandparents and it was, you know, children are meant to be seen and not heard and how far we've come now where we're teaching kids the things you're saying now. And it's just, it's awesome. And I can see how it all fits together now because this identifying emotions is, is really so vital in people starting at this big all the way up to adults. That's right. And, and caveat, it is so hard. So what, what I'm saying is aspirational, is ideal, is something that we work towards, we build a muscle for, but none of us get this right all the time, right? When we're triggered, whether we have a feeling in our body or what I was just about to get to, we have a thought in our head of, of anger, of upset, of feeling uh, 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 sort of dismissed or, uh, or not understood or misaligned, right? Or whether uh, we just start to feel anxious or super sad or super angry, we have some some identifier in our body that doesn't feel good, many of us will have moments where we just act out, where we just act out. We yell, we shut down, we slam a door, we uh, suppress and um, completely shut down. All of these things we all do and we will do again. So we're talking about more often than not, right? Trying as often as possible to build a muscle to really stay attuned to what we're feeling, thinking inside our mind, heart, body, so that we can make choices, what you were just alluding to, right? Whoa, something's going on with me. I'm feeling really angry all of a sudden. Let me take a deep breath and figure out what just happened. And, and that's hard to do, but 
it, it can be life-changing. And so the more we do it, the more it changes the neural pathways inside of our head, right? So if we tend to, um, in moments where we feel dismissed, ignored, not seen, not validated, if we tend to just go to anger and start snapping and yelling at our partner or our kids. We've built this neural pathway. So the minute we feel not validated, not heard, we go directly to anger. And it's almost involuntary. We don't think about it. We don't make the choice. It just happens. We want to be able to interrupt that well-traveled neural pathway so we can do something else. So we have space to make different choices. And the way to do that is to get conscious, is to get mindful, is to notice, wait a minute, I just got triggered. I'm feeling dismissed. I'm feeling not seen. Let me go in the other room and take a deep breath. Let me take two minutes and then return. And even if we still yell, even if we still slam the door, even if we still shut down, we've interrupted that neural pathway just a little bit. So it can't travel as quickly and as seamlessly and effectively to that anger place. So every time we interrupt it and make a different choice, if we're able to say out loud, like, wow, I'm feeling really angry. I'm going to go in the other room until I calm down. Or we're able to say, wow, I'm feeling really angry. I can't look at you right now. We're going to talk again after dinner, right? That interrupts this neural pathway and the unwanted, undesirable desirable behavior. So it's about these little micro moments, um, to use that term in a more positive way, right, to interrupt our typical patterns to get to a new outcome. And I think it's really important to linger on on my view around this, because I think it can feel super overwhelming to people listening to the idea of like, oh, right, I just have to like interrupt my angry response uh, when I get triggered, sure. And then they feel overwhelmed, like, how am I gonna do that? That that That's so built in, that's so automatic. And it, it can quickly feel uh, like, like a failure or shameful that they can't do it immediately. So it's these little micro steps to over time, build a new muscle for more space to make different choices. I love that. Give us something maybe that we can self-reflect on or ask ourselves a short sentence or a mantra that you might suggest to someone who really wants to interrupt those reactionary patterns. Yes. Yes. I, I, I love the idea of, of first grounding ourselves in sort of self-compassion. And so if the scenario I was just talking about, you feel not validated, not seen, ignored, dismissed by your partner, right? And you feel that immediate anger response. The first thing I recommend is some space and a deep breath. And I know sometimes that's hard. You can't leave the room. You have little kids. You are in the middle of something where it's just not logistically possible. If you can leave the room or you can just move a couple of feet over and take a couple of deep breaths, that's what I first recommend. And the idea of some version of like, nothing wrong with me, nothing wrong with this feeling, nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with this feeling. I'm feeling angry. Identifying that feeling and giving a bunch of self-compassion, a bunch of validation that like, Nothing wrong with being angry, nothing wrong with feeling dismissed, nothing wrong with uh, feeling not validated. It's what we do with that feeling that matters the most. So some version of nothing wrong with me, nothing wrong with this feeling, I'm just feeling angry and giving some space for perhaps a few minutes later to figure out, well, why am I feeling angry? And this is the a bigger ask, but if we can get some space to give ourselves self-compassion that like, it's cool that I'm triggered. It's okay that I'm angry. It's okay I'm feeling off-centered. That happens to everyone. What I wanna do is decide how I wanna respond. So I can respond from my most grown-up place, my most adult place and sort of target a response that you feel okay about. And, and that requires a bit more work and a bit more consciousness, but the idea of like, right, what do I, how do I want to deal with this anger? And so being able to be outside of the anger as opposed to in the anger, again, aspirational, difficult, takes a bunch of practice, but being able, for example, in that situation to say to our partner, 
I am feeling really angry right now. It feels like you didn't hear what I just said to you. I was trying to tell you how exhausted I am that I really need some help the rest of the day. It felt like you didn't hear me. As opposed to showing that anger, we're kind of narrating that anger. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm like you're talking and all these scenes are playing through my head. Like, you know, explosions at my kids when they're not listening or fights with my husband where I literally walk away and I was like, I just, I hate you right now. I love you, but I hate you. And I know that's why he was like, you're the first adult that's ever told me I hate you, by the way. And I'm like, I can't help it. I'm reactionary. I'm Italian. But, uh, well, look, we're all, we're all going to have those moments. And, and I, I, if you don't mind, I want to pause on that because we, including myself, we all have those moments where we don't do that. And just because we're having that this discussion, we're still going to have moments where we don't show up the way that we want to. And I, I love to weave in the notion of you can go back. You can always go back. So a big thing in my household with both my children and my husband is that if I show up in a way I don't feel good about, and then later when I'm by myself and have a moment to reflect, I feel the feeling of not feeling good about it. And it can go into kind of a shame spiral, right? Oh, I, I can't believe I yelled at my kids that way. I can't believe I showed up with my husband that way. And then I can get, and we can get kind of paralyzed and feeling just badly about ourselves. Instead of doing that, trying to rescue ourselves from that shame cycle that like no good happens here. No intergenerational patterns are broken when I'm stuck in my shame cycle. No healing occurs. Let me pull myself out, sort of embrace the fact that I'm human. We're all going to have moments that we show up in ways we don't feel good about and go back. So going back would look like with my kids, wow, mama just yelled. I got really angry and I even slammed the door. I'm so sorry. Mama got really angry and I had a hard time keeping my body calm. That wasn't your fault. And you know what? That happens to everyone and it's okay. Mama's going to work really hard on next time taking deep breaths and taking a quick break to keep my body calmer. I'm sorry that happened. I love you. With our husband, you know what? I, I, I didn't feel good about the way I just tried to tell you that I was having, I was having a tricky moment. Um, I'm, I'm going to try again later. I'm really sorry that I, I, I said it that way, right? So we can still advocate for our feelings, particularly with our, our grown-up counterparts, but acknowledging that it didn't feel good in, in terms of how we showed up makes a big difference in our relationships, of course, but in how we feel about ourselves. That, that shame cycle is contagious. It's internally contagious. It spreads, it metastasizes, right? And so if we are able to address it and heal it, it makes a big difference in terms of how we feel inside. Yeah. And the last thing you want is for your kids to ever feel any shame associated with an emotion. And then especially as they get older, not feel open enough to discuss that. So this is such great advice that you're giving is being accountable for our actions to our kids. I think there's a um, not an embarrassment, but like a lack of desire sometimes to explain ourselves to our kids because it's like other kids. They, you know, we don't, they don't, I don't need to explain myself to them. But what you just said makes so much sense because it teaches them to accept their feelings as they grow. So I think that was just such fantastic advice. Yep. That's awesome. Okay. Let's dig into, we, we started kind of off on the, I'm going back to this term again, but the smaller traumas, small T traumas, there are plenty of people who have experienced repeated patterns of whether it be abuse or anything else that's negatively impacted them, whether it was a one-time experience or a series of experiences. So I want to speak specifically to that group right now and the enormity of the feelings that can come with that. As someone who is practicing and helping people in those types of situations, how do you get them beyond that initial feeling of embarrassment or even um, locking it away so that they can address those feelings finally. Yeah. Yeah. Someone that has experienced 
trauma, as we were talking about, often has the inclination to suppress it or minimize it, avoid it. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, clients will come in and be completely overwhelmed by it, right? Be steeped in depression and anxiety and uh, really be um, close to non-functional, right? So we have kind of a spectrum of behavior that we might see when someone first enters therapy. And and so the, the first sort of order of business is trying to create an environment in which one feels safe enough to start processing it. And paradoxically, I sort of alluded to this before, but paradoxically, talking about the trauma, reliving it, discussing it, exploring it in detail, the feelings that came with it, the fears that came with it, the lack of control that came with it, the self-loathing that came with it, the myriad of feelings that people experience and walk away from when they have trauma need to be carefully explored. The why is because otherwise it gets stuck inside the body, as I was saying before. And I, I also love that term, having emotional rent to pay. I, I, I really mean that when we don't process trauma, it gets stuck inside our body and it shows up in other ways for years to come. And so it's critical at first to help clients begin to get through the resistance of talking about it because it can bring about feelings of shame, embarrassment, feeling out of control. So that's that's really the first step. And as I said to, to, to many folks, it can feel a bit um, paradoxical. Why do I wanna go there? It was so painful, it was so awful. I, I don't wanna talk about it. I don't wanna linger in it, but that's one of the things that um, is sort of the, the, the first order of business. We can't deal with what we don't acknowledge. We can't um, sort of move through something that we don't sit in. And so that's the first kind of concept uh, that I introduced and sort of experientially tried to facilitate. And even for those um, not in therapy or therapeutic scenarios, it's something that you can think about as well, talking about trauma, or as we were saying before, a microaggression, et cetera, with a trusted other, it's a big difference in terms of our healing from something that felt invasive or uncomfortable. And, and then there is a lot of grief that surfaces when we start dealing with the wounds of trauma not surprisingly, and um, maybe seems obvious in a certain way, but really worth highlighting. Grief is such a huge part of the healing from trauma, grief, right? If there was sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, being the victim of a crime in which you lost power and control, et cetera, there's so much grief. Something terrible has happened to you and you can't change it. You lived through it and it was horrifying and awful and there is a version of acceptance of that reality and then all the grief that comes with it, all the pain and having to lean into that and allow oneself to feel it. Because again, otherwise it gets locked up and comes out in other ways that end up being super destructive. Like, yeah. And there's just no, there's no other way. Right. I think I, I'm picturing this and it's like, you know, the beginning of like a long maze or a big game board where you're starting at the beginning by resurfacing that trauma and literally walking through. I know it's impossible to quantify this. So I'm asking this question with the most giant of asterisks, but how long typically do you work with patients who have been experiencing one of those more serious or pattern traumas before yeah. they start to feel like they're moving through the dark and starting to see the light? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. 
I don't know that I've ever tried to quantify it, but I, but I can. And in, in, in the spirit of what you're asking, I, I think, I mean, in general, when, when we're, we're talking about someone that's dealt with one of these intense, prolonged, intense and or prolonged traumas, the therapeutic process typically lasts years. Having said that, I think the first six months are critical in terms of stabilizing the client and that around the end of that time period, there may be a sense of relief from the unrelenting feelings of uh, lack of safety, of uh, uh, endless uh, sort of sense of anxiety and fear, uh, overwhelming depression, feeling uh, not functional day to day, that oftentimes after a period of around six months, there is some lifting in that regard where some sense of normalcy can return. And then I, I, I think that, you know, I was trying to kind of break it out um, uh, in the way that you're asking thereafter, it's, it's really about dealing with the now exposed and surfaced symptoms that you're dealing with, the depression, the fear, the anxiety, the grief, and how do you move through the world just because you process them doesn't mean they disappear. So how do you move through the world and relationships when you're carrying anxiety, depression, fear, a sense of feeling destabilized, disoriented? And so there's really an ebb and flow, I think, of moments of feeling empowered and and a bit shored up and moments of feeling deeply impacted and, and destabilized. And, and, and so sort of beginning to, to build a toolbox of tools of how do I move through the world with these, you know, really unimaginable feelings. Yeah, but you can promise and, and that there is some relief too at the end of this story, at the end of all the work and everything too. If you're trying to convince someone who say has packed away their trauma or has experienced something that they're not or haven't been ready to address yet, what is your... What's your pitch line? What's yeah. your sales line to get yeah. them there, to get them in a chair? Love it. Yes. Yes. Well, to get them, there's a, tr anyone that's experienced trauma has a, has a, a, a truth. Um, it, it could be a hidden truth, a, a, an acknowledged truth or somewhere in between. The truth is, is that even if you haven't been in therapy, you feel it, you experience it in a way that is disruptive at best and, and continuously traumatic at worst. So even if you've ha you have it packed away and suppressed, you're experiencing it, experiencing it in some way. You're disconnecting. You're um, abusing substances. You're overworking, underworking. You're displaying irritation in relationships, in work environments. You have depression. You have anxiety. There's something or some sets of things in your life that don't feel good, and it can be linked and dotted line to the trauma. And so instead of accepting and committing to a life of that kind of invasive discomfort, coming in and dealing with the trauma in the no doubt intense way that I'm talking about relieves over time that chronic state of being, that chronic state of discomfort and disenfranchisement and feeling um, uh, sort of sentenced to these set of symptoms that no doubt come with the trauma. So it, it is, there's no question it's, it's hard, uncomfortable, devastating work at, at, at moments. There's no doubt we, 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 we can't escape that when you've been through a, a traumatic experience, 
the experience itself is traumatic and healing from it is traumatic. There's no doubt about it. But instead of living in that stuck place where you feel like you have no choices, therapy begins to offer choices and over time relief. Yeah, the alternative just sucks if you don't deal with it. That's right. The alternative just sucks. And look, there's no doubt that like healing from trauma and therapy also sucks. It's hard. It's painful. But it's also supportive and um, an environment in which you no longer feel alone and you can feel acknowledged and validated and held and um, uh, begin to loosen that hold of shame that trauma almost always brings. And so even though it's hard work, uh, it's a different kind of work that a person that's dealing with trauma on their own is facing every day. That kind of work is lonely and isolating and at times helpless and hopeless. Yeah. I love crying with my therapist, even virtually. I just, there's something so cathartic about it. Good. Virtual crying turns out it's still good. <laughs> it's the best virtual cry. Yes. In person, I will literally cry on anyone's shoulder. Um, I want to talk specifically about um, the type of person who finds him or herself repeatedly in negative relationships, whether there are patterns of abuse that keep resurfacing, or they're drawn to the same type of man who treats them in a way that ultimately is damaging. Let's speak to that crowd for a second. I feel like a lot of young women end up at least in one relationship in their life that is damaging or abusive in some either subtle or grand way. Um, how, how do we identify if we're in a relationship that is traumatizing us in some way? Yeah. So if we have chronic feelings of not being seen, heard, validated, of being dismissed, disrespected, not being heard or listened to, those are signs that we are in a relationship that is at best uh, uh, disrespectful and not in alignment with what is best for our heart and mind and body and soul, and at worst, potentially abusive. We want to be with someone who is able to tolerate our feelings, our thoughts, our ideas, our positions, conflict. And if our thoughts and ideas are minimized or ignored chronically, that is a problem and will begin to create symptoms inside of us over time, right? Begin to question ourselves, begin to um, see ourselves suppressing our voices, begin to chip away at our sense of self and sense of self-esteem. Obviously, well, perhaps it's not obvious. It's, it's uh, important to say that any kind of abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, name calling, um, uh, minimizing ideas, uh, disrespecting uh, our relationships, the work that we do, any kind of emotional, mental abuse are signs that we're in a relationship that is toxic or unsafe. Being in a relationship where someone seeks to control you, um, whether that's through who you see, uh, how you spend your money, what you wear, uh, where you work, anything like that is a sign that we are not fully free to be ourselves at best and at worst in an abusive, controlling relationship. So when we see ourselves in a situation where we're not feeling good about ourselves. We're questioning ourselves. We're constantly questioning whether or not we're uh, thought of, uh, loved, uh, considered, prioritized, heard. These are signs that we're potentially in a, a toxic relationship and, and perhaps an abusive one. What, what advice do you give to married women? I, or I guess in some cases as well, married men who feel like they are in 
a negative relationship, but feel the pull to stay because of the family and because of the kids and because of the change in the quality of life that they might experience. What do you say to those people specifically? Yeah. I mean, the, the old adage that it's uh, best to stay together for the children or to avoid difficult changes needs to be debunked in some situations. It is not better for our kids and it is not better for ourselves to be in a situation that is toxic. At, look, at times we're faced with a bunch of not so great choices, right? We're faced with, uh, do we leave a toxic relationship and um, disrupt our kids' lives and our lives or do we stay in one and model abuse for our kids and withstand um, uh, mistreatment? Those are, those are great choices. Right? And that often leads uh, people to just uh, feel paralyzed and stay stuck, stuck because they're faced with like not so great choices. But we must put those choices in a hierarchy and use our conscious grown up minds to make decisions about what is best for ourselves and for our children. And if we are in an abusive, toxic relationship, I can plainly state as a clinician that it is better not to stay in that for ourselves and for our children. It is better for our kids not to witness that. It is better for us to narrate that, that it is, it is a, a, a tricky relationship with mom and dad. We, we don't get along in a way that's safe. We don't get along in a way that best serves the family. We're going to be separate. We love you. We're always going to be a, a, a mom and a dad to you. We're just going to do it separately, right? Um, I'm getting uh, perhaps too far in the weeds there, but the idea that the narrative for our children can be an honest version of like, you know what? It, it's too tricky for mom and dad to be together. It's actually safer for us all to be a family a, a little bit apart. They do really do well with brutal honesty. I mean, we have conversations age appropriate about how babies come into the world. I mean, like there is a way, and I'm not an expert obviously, but there is a way I feel like to be honest with kids and to drill down to the core of the issue and make it age appropriate in some way. Because it, like you're saying, if we if we pattern or show things for them or display things for them that inevitably end up negatively impacting the way they deal in their relationships, it's like the last thing you want. So I, I love hearing that, that it may feel like a little bit of a Band-Aid to rip off, but they are capable of understanding honest explanations, right? No doubt. And in fact, one of the dynamics that I often deal with with my adult clients, who, of course, were once children, is the confusion they experienced in their family of origin around what was happening. So if parents were uh, staying together but uh, had a lot of uh, dynamics of betrayal, conflict, et cetera, and the child was left to fill in the blanks for themselves, they almost always fill in the blanks to their own detriment. Oh, this must be about me. Children have this very unique ability to assume that everything is about them. And they are much better off to have the brutal honesty that you were alluding to, to say like, what I'm about to tell you is gonna be hard. This is gonna be tricky, but this is our truth. This is the truth mm -hmm. of our family. Mom and dad are having a tricky time. It's too tricky for us to live together in the same house. This is not your fault. We love you. We never want you to think this has anything to do with you. This is grown up stuff. Mom and dad are having a hard time and the decision we've made is to live apart for now. While that might be hard and sad and full of grief, it is not confusing to our children, right? It is not, uh, they are not left to wonder if they are at the center of those decisions. Yeah, they're so much wiser than we give them credit for. That's right, and and they they are. You know, it's, it's oversaid because um, it's true. Kids are super resilient, and in the face of truths, and in the face of understanding, this isn't your fault, and you are loved, and you're still going to be safe. They're pretty okay. 
Yeah. I want to just wrap up this particular conversation about, um, you know, identifying traumatic or abusive relationships by asking you to just provide some brief advice for people that find themselves with the same type of person over and over again and who start to feel like I just can't get away from people that treat me in this way. Yes. So these are signs, if there's a chronic pattern of finding yourselves in relationships where you're mistreated, there is unhealed trauma there somewhere. There is unhealed trauma there somewhere, whether that was a, a very specific, clear or subtle dynamic in your family of origin, a past relationship that has somehow left an unhealed wound that has you seeking getting a certain kind of love and validation for someone who is unable and unwilling to do it, right? And so we keep returning to that dry well to try to create a different outcome, but with someone who is abusive or toxic or unavailable or unwilling, we get the same outcome, which is feeling unseen and unloved. So there's an unhealed, unexplored, unprocessed trauma there. And so recognizing like, right, there's something bigger than me happening here. There's something with which um, I don't have a sense of empowerment or control. And instead of feeling shame or just steeped in total confusion, deciding that like, wait, there's something here that I don't understand, but that is repetitive and that I need some help with. And so I, I couldn't over recommend seeking therapy to help understand what is beneath the, these unconscious choices that keep bringing you to the same environment and the same outcome. There is absolutely a way out with consciousness and, and therapeutic work. Awesome. I want to move on next. I know we only have like five minutes left and there's so much that I want to ask you. Um, you delved into family of origin issues and we are all both loved and damaged by our families in some ways. And some of it is overt and some of it is inadvertent. Um, I want to speak specifically to anyone who may have grown into adulthood and sensed that there is a deep disconnect between them and the, the people that raised them. It's a really, really hard thing to reconcile. And frankly, I think it takes a really emotionally intelligent person to recognize that sometimes those closest to you might be the ones that might be the worst for your emotional health. So can you speak to that situation and how you help people identify if a family of origin issue is worth working through or if it's something or a relationship they need to step back from? Yeah, it it, it is one of the more painful reconciliations that uh, that uh, adults can do if they're willing and um, and and brave enough to face it, which is right. What what parts of my family of origin experience were healing and holding and loving, and what parts caused wounds or were damaging or toxic? And there's a resistance uh, that many of us experience when we ask ourselves these questions to acknowledge that, like. Right, my my own mother, my own father, my own stepmother, my own brother, my own sister, my aunt, my grandma, etc., hurt me, um, impacted me in a way that not only doesn't serve me, but has left um, collateral emotional damage and impacts how I feel about myself, how I move through the world, or the relationships I choose. And going back to that idea I talked about before, grief. There's a lot of grief that people want to unconsciously or consciously avoid in acknowledging these truths. And, and, and so it's a big deal to start to reconcile with the truth of your experiences in your family of origin. And yet it is probably um, one of the key roads to a sense of well-being, a sense of peace, a sense of groundedness and contentment is 
understanding the impact of your family of origin, both the good and the bad, and being able to no longer live in the projections of our family of origin, right? We all come out with these messages that like, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, um, I'm uh, not the preferred child, um, I'm the angry one, I'm the less smart one, right? We all come out uh, sort of living in the projections of the narratives and the messages of our family of origin. And one of our goals is to get out from under those projections. And the only way to do that is to look at them and to face them, to grieve them, to get angry about them, to be sad about them, and to start healing them. And you alluded to, and you're, you're right, sometimes this process results in us recognizing that there was and is so much toxicity that we can't be in relationship with those people in our lives, or we have to have really significant boundaries in place to be safe. And that's a whole other layer of complicated work, but wow, can it lead to a sense of freedom and empowerment? The idea that like, right, I really recognize the impact my mother's criticism had on me as a child. And now I don't want to move to estrangement, but I will move to creating very clear boundaries when she goes down the road of criticism. Oh, mom, I see that that you're getting into commenting on kind of, you know, how I'm raising the kids. I'm actually going to going to hang up now. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Love you. Talk to you later. Right. And so we can be in relationship with uh, 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 folks that that don't always move through uh, our relationships in the, the best or healthiest way. We, we just have to actively advocate for our emotional health by setting boundaries. Not easy work, but critical, amazing work. I want to round out finally with we've we've worked in a ton of viewer questions as we've been chatting here. But the one very specific question that I got that I wanted to sort of dedicate its own time to was someone who wrote in about experiencing emotional abuse and how to heal so she or he can trust again. What would your advice be to her? Gosh, yes. Um, I, I, I first just want to validate and acknowledge emotional abuse is a powerful, devastating form of abuse that can um, be as wounding as physical abuse and sort of break down how we feel about ourselves, how we see ourselves, how we trust ourselves, how we move through the world, how we relate to others. It, it can be incredibly traumatic and wounding. So I just want to deeply acknowledge and validate that truth. I think working through, kind of quote, working through emotional, uh, uh, the, the aftermath of emotional abuse on on your own is a is a tall order, and that having the support of a professional is critical. We have to start debunking the messages and the voice that we internalize that something's wrong with us, that we're not good enough, that we are bad, that we're not smart enough, that we're not worthy, right? That that that's um, in an emotionally abusive relationship. It, it's as if it was infused into our body through like an intravenous line, right? And now it, it we no longer need the abuser. It's it's now our words. It's how we talk to ourselves. And so to cut um, that that intravenous line to interrupt those messages, those neural pathways that I alluded to, takes a lot of deep work. First, we have to acknowledge and process and talk about the trauma. Then we have to grieve. And then we have to discuss how do we interrupt those neural pathways, those messages that we are now feeding to ourselves about our own worth and our own abilities and our own value. And we have to do that very deliberately and very slowly and in a safe environment. And so I, I know that 
that's not as specific as perhaps this this listener was hoping that I would get into, but it is it is a, a long process that is healing from trauma, kind of what we've been talking about, and requires the kind of dedicated time and support that I, I I've been alluding to. So I I couldn't over recommend and and just really like hope and pray for this person and anyone who's dealt with emotional abuse to avail themselves of the resource of of therapy. You you deserve it. You need it. There. In my view, there there is no healing from emotional abuse, like on your own. Oh, if you could just be strong enough, you could like push through it. It's trauma and you need an expert in trauma to help you move through it. And and so value yourself enough and and don't um, devalue yourself for not quote, doing it on your own. It, it, you can't heal from your own, um, like from diabetes, you can't heal from your own, on your own from emotional trauma. You need someone who's an expert. I love that. Do you have any uh, services you recommend digital therapy if people aren't um, in the vicinity of a therapist they prefer? Um, what do you usually recommend to people? Yeah, I, you know, th these days, um, if, if you go on um, any of the uh, uh, resources like psychology today, findatherapist.com, you can find a therapist virtually. And mm -hmm. so it is much easier to connect with therapeutic services, especially in the wake of COVID. And now that paradigm um, has really shifted so that much of therapy is now offered uh, digitally. And so even if you're in a smaller town or you don't have immediate access to a therapy in your vicinity, you can connect with someone within your state that you can find online. And I, I, I think that that rather than the the apps that are offered that provide therapeutic services, which um, are also an option, but because there's so many licensed therapists that have been in practice for a time offering digital services, psychology today, findatherapist.com are great resources to find someone in your state. They don't have to be close to you, just in your state. Awesome. Hillary, tell us where we can find you. You are such like a calming, I can see why you're amazing at what you do. You're such a calming, informative presence. And I, I'm sure people are eager to check out more of your stuff online as well. So please tell us where we can find you. Yes, thank you. So it's been such a pleasure to be here. So you can, uh, on Instagram, you can find me at Dr. Hillary L.A., D-R-H-I-L-L-A-R-Y-L-A, just the letters L-A, and then at drhillarygulcher.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I know you're a busy lady and we're truly grateful. Uh, my pleasure. It's such a good conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great one. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I feel cleansed. I feel peaceful. Um, if you're not, why aren't you in therapy if you're not in therapy <laughs> is my question for anyone because this is the kind of amazing sort of relief and information you can avail yourselves of on a weekly basis if you so choose to. There is no one out there that can't benefit from a little one-on-one -on -one time with someone who can help you dig in a little bit, get honest with yourself and just walk away feeling a little bit better. You know, we're huge, huge advocates for therapy here. We got to talk. So go be well, find your peace, find your person to help you work through any things you may be experiencing and a whole lot of love from here. We will see you guys next week with more good stuff here on We Gotta Talk.